turn our attention to Revelation. Have you ever listened to, say, a choir or a piece of live music and you think, oh, this is the end, and you begin to clap only to realize, oh, no, no, it's, it's not finished. There's a, there's a reprise. <laughs> okay, I look kind of silly. Or you're at a classical music thing and it's only the end of the first movement, but you go to clap and only to realize that you're so completely uncultured that you're the only one clapping and the rest of the room all seem to know we're waiting until the end of the entire piece, right? That's the book of Revelation, essentially. John starts the book, and he's describing the risen Jesus in a powerful description that ends with, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And we're all like, yes, clapping, only for John to keep going, and we realized, oh, the, not the clapping moment. Okay, okay, we're not, we're not done yet. And we read through seven letters, each of them equal parts encouraging and convicting, and we think, well, that was lovely, and we start to do the slow, quieter clap. No, that was just movement two. We're not done, and then the heavens open, and our senses are overwhelmed with John's descriptions, and by the time he gets through writing chapter five, and he's seen the lion of the tribe of Judah looking like a lamb that has been slain, and everyone is singing, worthy is the lamb, and worshiping, and we're on our feet and the ending is amazing. No, it's not the end. Sit back down because we got some weird horses and earthquakes coming. And then we get this incredible scene of those around the throne. There's people from every nation and tribe and people and language and color and God is wiping tears from our eyes and it's beautiful and it's an even better ending than the one before. Good call, God. This is the place to end the whole story. No, it is not the end. Quit clapping. We've got censors and trumpets and plagues and judgment and we make it through that really odd level of strange and then we have John eating a book and then it gets really weird when the dragon shows up and we're definitely wondering why haven't we brought this story to an end way back right have you ever read a book that you thought why has this not ended yet I mean why are we keeping going you know like we could have ended this several chapters uh, back and then though everyone burst into song and we're on our feet again declaring victory and joining in the song of the redeemed and that is surely the end no it's not there's more judgment and there's bowls of wrath looking very much like those trumpets but then Babylon falls and we're on our feet singing the hallelujah songs and ending for the ages no we have still clapped too early weddings wars books satan forever defeated and we hold our breath because we have been fooled one too many times on this whole revelation story right we want to clap we want to believe that that's the end so we kind of look around do you think this is the end because seriously how long is this Revelation series gonna go? I mean, this, this study of the book of Revelation has gone on longer than the thousand year reign. I mean, when they started this months back, we never thought they would still be at it at the end of February, right? Uh, but then we get to the opening of chapter 21, and this is genuinely the final reprise, right? The story has kind of repeated itself over and over and over again. And we are just about to get to the end of this movement. And when we do, it really will be the end. And it really will be time for the standing ovation. But there's lots in this reprise. 
about three weeks worth. But the last couple of chapters of Revelation, they really are just retelling and reinforcing what John wrote in the letters to the churches at the beginning. And the middle bit, the confusing part of Revelation that has kept many of us from bothering to read this book for years, it was all just fleshing out what John had said would happen to the churches and then what he saw happen to those churches and the people of God by the very end. And we've seen so much of the story of Revelation repeated over and over. So much has happened, in fact, that we've kind of forgotten what was at the start of the book. These introductory letters to the seven churches who initially received this vision each of those letters contained a description of Jesus that John would use again in the book. He keeps describing him in the same ways. And then each one of those letters either commended the church for something they were doing well or in keeping the faith, or it spoke to them of coming difficulties and persecution, or sometimes the content of the letter brought conviction and a call to repentance. And that's the whole middle bit of Revelation, explaining in great detail what those difficulties would look like and what would happen to those who keep their eyes on the Lamb and what would happen to those who did not heed the conviction of the Holy Spirit and did not repent. And then each one of those seven letters ended saying what those who overcame stood to inherit. And the book ends with those exact things being inherited by the whole church. It's as if what God said actually came to pass and it was all true. So have I confused you yet? Then let me uh, explain a little bit further. What did those seven churches stand to inherit? So again, Revelation begins with John on the island of Patmos. He's there in exile because, it says, of his commitment to the word of God and his testimony of Jesus. So he knows what he's talking about when he speaks of persecution and difficulties and not pledging allegiance to the culture, the empire, or the government of his day. And one Sunday, John is praying, and as he prays, the Holy Spirit comes to him and begins to show him all sorts of things. And he hears a loud voice tell him, write on a scroll what you see and what you hear, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he begins with specific instructions to each of these churches in these seven cities. But the entire book of Revelation is what he saw and heard and what he sent to the churches, right? Sometimes I think that we get that confused. We think that, oh, he wrote these seven letters, right? And they really have nothing to do with everything else that he saw in the book of, Re of Revelation. Or that he wrote the book of Revelation and then somebody found those seven letters and just thought, well, we'll just tag them on and call it all the one book, right? But the whole thing is one piece. These are the seven letters, but he's sending this vision to those seven churches. It's all connected. It's all one giant letter. And each church is told something different about what they would inherit, specifically if they overcame. 
If you overcome, then here is what you will inherit. So John wrote to the church in Ephesus that the overcomers will eat from the tree of life. He wrote to Smyrna, the overcomers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum, the overcomers will be given a new name. He told Thyatira, the overcomers will be given authority over the nations, that he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. And the overcomers will also be given the morning star. Sardis is told the overcomers will be dressed in white and have their names blotted out from the book of life. In Philadelphia, the overcomers will have the name of God written on them and they'll dwell forever with God in the new city that is coming down out of heaven. And lastly, Laodicea is told that the overcomers will sit on the throne with Jesus and reign with him. And then when God makes everything new in chapter 21, we're told, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then we begin to see all that those who have overcome. They have overcome the beast and Babylon and idolatry, those who have kept themselves pure and not worshiped the beast, but remained focused on the lamb. We see all that they now inherit. For those who inherited were given robes made white in the blood of the lamb and made of fine linen, bright and clean. They were invited and inherited the marriage feast of food that was not sacrificed to idols. And this may well be hidden manna that was spoke of, of in the, the letter to Pergamum. It was food prepared for God's people by God himself. There was opportunity to reign with Jesus. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's found again in, in chapter 19. That verse is quoted twice by John, and it's from Psalm 2, which the Jews and all of John's readers knew as a messianic psalm. It was this idea then when he wrote it to Thyatira, and then whenever he quotes it again with Jesus sitting on a horse, a white horse, it was this idea then that they are, Jesus is now truly the king of the world, and he now is beginning this reign and those who have overcome will now begin to reign with him they were given a place to dwell forever with God in the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God there was escape from the second death which was a fiery lake of burning sulfur life as a pillar in the very presence of the Lord God Almighty and the lamb who have now become the temple was given to them they had a name that was written down in the lamb's book of life there was food from the tree of life which is constantly producing that they had access to there was a new name written down on each one of them and it's the name of the lamb and we find that they are reigning now with Christ forever and ever the right to the tree of life and the right to go through the gates to the city and if all of this isn't enough they were also given Jesus in the form of the bright morning star the whole Bible had been pointing to this moment with its reminders in the New Testament that we who have come to Christ are now joint heirs with Christ, that we are seated with him in heavenly places. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. And we're told that every spiritual blessing is now available to us through Christ Jesus. And the end of Revelation shows us exactly what this will look like. It looks like this. this this is what they were told in those letters they would inherit if they overcame. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see them receive each one of those inheritance. 
And I don't know what you stand to inherit here on earth, but this is way better. I mean, I love me some pottery, but also, I don't know, a new name written down on us, and it's the name of the Lamb reigning with Christ forever and ever, and a feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb that, with food that has been prepared for me by God himself. That sounds like a really good plan. When I was a kid, mom and dad bought this lovely dining room table, and it filled the dining room at the parsonage over here where we lived uh, during my growing up years. The table was massive. It filled the dining room, and if you put all the leaves in it, then the person at the head of the table was actually outside of the dining room into the entryway, right? This, this table was just, it was massive. And if you had, um, uh, yeah, if you had people over, then mom would always leave this really big, thick, protective um, pad that covered the whole table. On top of it, it came with the table. And mom did that so that it wouldn't get scratched or um, stained or scorched by someone putting something, you know, too hot directly on the table. So always then, this, this giant, thick, you know, whatever, hot pad kind of thing was laying on top of this table. And mom has faithfully kept that table protected, and it looks exactly the same as it did almost 40 years ago when they bought the thing. I mean, over the years, she's recovered the chairs, then she bought some new, cheer, new chairs, but that table is pristine. And a few years back, I said to mom, Mom, if you're keeping that table protected for me and Beck, we don't want your table you could go ahead and just take that pad right on off and just enjoy your table. You obviously bought it because you thought it was pretty and you never see it because you've been protecting it, but we don't want your table. So go ahead and use the thing up, right? So now when I go to the house, I'll say, mom, are we not using any placemats? And mom will say, oh no, <laughs> just go ahead and put your cup right down on the table because Sarah doesn't want my table like this. But here's the thing, use it all up. I don't want your table. This is what I'm inheriting. This is what I'm gonna get is an eternity with Jesus. I'm gonna reign with him. I'm gonna dwell in his presence forever. I'll never be hungry or in need again. I'll be dressed in garments made clean by the blood of the lamb. So use the table, mom, because my inheritance is in heaven. Well then, what did the church have to overcome so that they could inherit all of this, right? Because they're only inheriting if they overcome. Well, Ephesus was told not to forget their first love. Don't let your love for God lessen as the years of serving Jesus go by. And as we move into this new season at Carbondale, I think these lessons are kind of timely for us this morning as we just rethink again about what those things were that were told specifically to those churches, not just to individuals, because we, in America, we read the scripture and we apply it directly to ourselves, but what was this saying to the church collectively? That collectively the church was supposed to continue to love God. And our first love isn't Carbondale, though it's a close second for me, but Jesus is our first love and he's the head of the church and we're not going to let change in our church lessen our love for Jesus and we're not going to let 90 years of being a church here at Carbondale be the time where we start to slow down or start to fall down on the job of caring for one another and reaching our community or sending our support to missionaries around the world. 
And later, John said that those who overcome did not love their own lives so much as to shrink from death. In the face of change and challenge, the church continues to move forward loving Jesus and overcoming through Jesus, through his blood, and through his death. Then John wrote to Smyrna, don't be afraid of persecution and suffering, but be faithful in spite of it. No matter what comes, the question is, will we be found faithful? In chapter 13 of Revelation, the beast comes out of the sea and begins persecuting the people of God, and we're told then that some will even go into captivity. And imagine John writing that down while captive, right? Going, "Mm mm-hmm, I know that's true, because here I am, and some of you people are gonna have to endure it as well. But then the very next line is that he says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And folks, we have to keep persevering, we have to keep going, and we have to keep the faith no matter what changes or challenges present themselves. Pergamum was told to remain true to the Lord and true to his name, to not go after false teaching and idols and sinful ways, and they're specifically told not to indulge in sexual immorality. And at the end of Revelation, we find those are the ones who do not escape and are sent to a fiery lake, those who were vile and sexually immoral and practicing magic arts or idolaters. Those are the ones in Revelation 21.8 who were told then are sent away. Instead, Pergamum is encouraged to not follow all of those things, but to remain true to the name of Jesus and not renounce their faith in him. And again, will we at Carbondale commit to remain pure in the way that we live our lives, to not give in to false teaching that preaches a gospel without a cross, without a gospel that challenges us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus each and every day? Will we make that challenge for ourselves that we at Carbondale will be a group of people who commit to remain pure in our theology, our sexuality, and our worship of the Lamb? Then Thyatira was told to remain faithful and not to give in to the ways of the world or the sin that was around them. They're told specifically to not put up with or to tolerate anything the culture around them was offering if it was going to mislead the church. John does not want, or Jesus does not want his churches to be misled. Jesus says he knows the deeds of this church, but some, not all, some were too tolerant of Babylon, and they enjoyed all the city and the empire had to offer. Essentially, they had taken their eyes off of the lamb just for a second to go after what the culture and what the city had to offer because there was wealth and there was excitement and there was all sorts of things that was calling for them, and they took their eyes off of Jesus. But those who do so, who tolerate and allow it to get inside of their hearts and begin to have an impact on them, those will not inherit heaven. They will not overcome, and they will not stand to inherit. Sardis apparently has a reputation of looking alive on the outside, but then they're actually dead on the inside. And so the church at Sardis is told to wake up and to repent and to keep themselves pure. And I don't want Carbondale to just look good on the outside to those who know us in our community. Oh yeah, Carbondale does really great things. 
But then when they come inside, I don't want them to find a church that was just rotting from hidden sinful behaviors. We want to be found pure and ready, clean on the inside and on the outside when we are talking to each other and our witness then to those around us because it's to the church at Sardis that Jesus says, he'll come like a thief in the night. And so this is the time to make sure that Carbondale has readied herself because there may not be any more time than this very moment. Philadelphia is told to endure patiently and that those who overcome will have the name of God written on them and they will dwell forever with God in the new city that is coming down out of heaven. And these are those who in the end did not take the mark of the beast. They didn't identify with the empire or get swayed by the beast or the dragon. Instead, these are the ones that we see in chapter 20 who were killed for their testimony for Jesus and because of their, uh, because of the word of God. Those are the exact same reasons John had been exiled. He understood the cost to remain true to the word of God, to remain true then for us to understand this is the word of God and Jesus is the word made flesh. Are we remaining true to what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches us? Are we remaining true then to the word and flesh, Jesus himself? Are we keeping our eyes on him? John understood the cost and he recognized then those who were paying that same price. But these were those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. But their thoughts and their deeds were pure and loyal to the lamb. And they were those who overcame. And lastly, Laodicea is told to remain useful in service to the Lord. And those who overcome will sit on the throne with Jesus. It's the church at Laodicea that is compared to lukewarm water, which is good for nothing right? Cold water is refreshing. Hot water you can clean with, you can do something with, but lukewarm water has just been left to sit there at room temperature, and it's taken on the flavor of everything that's around it. This is what was meant in Revelation 21.8 when John mentions that the cowardly won't inherit because their faith is empty. It wasn't worth anything at all. Those are the what was written to those seven churches in Revelation, reminding them of all that they would need to do and how to stay the course and what they would indeed need to overcome in order to inherit. But to the church at Carbondale, can I just say this morning, let's keep Jesus as our first love. Let's keep building on the firm foundation we sang about this morning, that we've built our lives on Jesus. And may that continue to be our testimony for the next 90 years. Let's not give in to the sin that is around us or the sin within us. And I'm just going to be honest with you this morning, as honest as I know how to be, and I'm nothing if not honest. My mother has long said, you never have to worry about what Sarah is thinking. She will just tell you. So here's what I am thinking, and I'm going to be really honest, and I hope that you hear this with the love and the kindness that I mean to accompany this warning. But these next few months, the temptation to gossip is going to be off the charts. Amen. And I'm telling you now, if you hear someone say, well, I heard, mm-hmm, well, you know what I heard. You can just say, well, I didn't hear that, and that wasn't said from the pulpit, and that's the end of that conversation. Because every person in this room, from the pastors to the staff to the church board to you and anyone who is here today for the very first time, 
we all know the exact same information. It was just shared to you by our pastor on a screen. That's the process. That's what's happening. And there isn't any secret hidden agenda or information. And you need to know that and you need to be careful then how you display that. If you're tempted to gossip in this season, instead, would you commit yourself to pray? To pray for our church, to pray for our board, who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, who have been tasked to hear from God for our church and for this next season. Would you pray for our pastors, who are going to continue to lead this church until we're told that the burden has been relieved from us? Would you pray that we we would remain united around the purpose and the mission of our church in this season and for the years to come that we would continue to be a place of healing, hope, laughter, and peace. Would you pray in this season that Carbondale would continue to keep ourselves pure, that we would continue to remain holy, that we would keep worshiping Jesus and we would keep our eyes on the Lamb? Would you pray that Carbondale would be found faithful if Jesus comes back before a new pastor is even voted on? Would you pray that Jesus would protect us from the enemy who wants to try and divide us and wants to pick us off during this time? Because the enemy wants nothing more than for us to stop going to church because we were really only going because of Phil. You know, Phil knew us. He knew our family. He loved us. He was funny right he knew all the things and so we just thought we'd keep going until Phil was gone and then we were probably just gonna slip on out we're gonna find a new place except we didn't and instead we just began to stop going to church and do you know what would be the worst possible legacy for Phil Taylor is if anybody stopped serving Jesus because he left Carbondale would you pray that we would remain connected to Jesus and to church because this is not the time for us to stop meeting together it is not the time for us to stop acting like the church so would you pray that we would be found faithful and pure and still living according to his word and still loving each other and still assembling together right here long after he is gone may we be found still fulfilling the commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples still serving our purpose and not growing lukewarm in our next 90 years. This is my prayer for Carbondale. The church of Jesus Christ will overcome the world and the sin inside of it and the persecution of the saints. And they'll do that in each generation until Jesus returns. And John was told at the end of his vision, don't seal up the words of this prophecy because the time is near. And let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. But let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. When the prophet Daniel was given some equally crazy dreams and visions, 
visions hundreds of years before John, he was told to seal up his vision because it wasn't for his day, it was still to come. But John is told to leave it open because we're all supposed to be reading it and learning from it and putting it into practice. We've said all along in this series, John's readers didn't read this letter and think, oh, good, I'm glad that's not for us, but 2023 is gonna be crazy, right? They knew this was for them in this moment. They recognized the warnings. They heeded the call to repent. They heard the encouragement to keep going and persevere, and they rejoiced in the hope it brought them that there was victory ahead. They continued to do right and to live holy lives in the face of persecution and a corrupt culture all around them. And may each generation that comes has come before us and that comes after us continue to do the same. And so quickly, how will each generation be able to overcome and stand to inherit all that John's readers were told? We will overcome by keeping our eyes on the Lamb who has never changed. Each letter gave a differing description of Jesus, but we see them all a second time. The one who holds seven stars and walks among the seven lamps is also the first and the last. He has a sharp double-edged sword which comes from his mouth. He has eyes which blaze like fire and feet like burnished bronze. He's the one from whom the sevenfold spirit of God is sent, and he holds the keys to David's throne. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the ruler of God's creation. And from the opening of John's letter, Jesus had declared, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. And John turned then to see who that voice was that he heard speaking. And when he turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool. It was as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. John next saw Jesus in the throne room. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Later, John saw Jesus again, and this time he was the bridegroom leading the battle against the enemy, the beast. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes, again, are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And then the lamb has the final word and announces, Behold, 
behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. For I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. For I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. This is the Jesus who has captured our attention, the Jesus whom we adore and to whom all glory and honor is due. This is the one to whom we sing, worthy is the lamb. This is the one we worship with shouts of hallelujah, the lamb has overcome. This depiction of Jesus is what we will keep in our mind and our heart for the days and weeks and years to come as we long for his return. This is the Jesus we pledge our lives to and commit as a church to continue serving together until he calls us home. Jesus has not changed. From the beginning of the story, through the middle, and all the way to the end, the book of Revelation has been about the Lamb. And if you've learned nothing else from this study, I hope what you hear in your heart each time you read Revelation is this, find the Lamb. Keep your eyes on the Lamb, because the whole book has been about Him. And I don't know what all this year will bring for us as a church, but I know Jesus, and I know that he is with us, and I know that we must commit to fix our eyes on the lamb and not get distracted, not even by the holy work of choosing a pastor. We must keep our eyes on the lamb and remain faithful. These are the words Jesus sent to his church. You can read them all in Revelation. And to the ones who overcome, there's so much to inherit. And so, as each one of those letters concluded, to the one who has an ear, let us hear what the Spirit has to say to his church. Will you bow your heads this morning? Jesus, speak to our hearts this morning. May we heed the warnings personally and as a church. May we commit together for such a time as this to continue to do the work that you've called us to do. It's too easy for you to pick us, for the enemy to pick us off one by one, but collectively, if we'll stay connected and encouraging each other, then we're gonna be able to overcome all the challenges that we face personally and the challenges that we face as a church. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to remain committed to each other and to you. Would you help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on you? Because Jesus, you don't change. Whatever else changes, you don't. You're described the same because you are the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. You are there through it all and you'll continue to be. Jesus, let us hear what it is that you're speaking to us as a church. Speak to us, Lord, as we seek your face and seek to know you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, how we bless your name. May we hear from you, Lord.